This episode of Author Stories is brought to you by the Writing Mastery Academy. Founded by Jessica Brody, author of the best-selling plotting guide, Save the Cat Writes a Novel. The Writing Mastery Academy features online, on-demand writing courses, including the official Save the Cat Writes a Novel companion course, novel fast drafting, crafting dynamic characters, and productivity hacks for writers to name just a few, plus monthly live webinars on various writing topics. Go to jessicabrody.com slash hank to learn more and get your first month of unlimited access to all the content for just $6. That's right, just $6. jessicabrody.com slash hank. You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret White. Terry Brooks. Sheena Kamal. Matthew Quick. J.T. Ellison. Walt D. Williams. Brad Ford. Corey Doctorow. Brandon Sanders. Robin Mom. Ernest Klein. Jim Butcher. Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Patrick Francis on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called All the Children Are Home, and uh, I'm super excited to talk about this book today, Patrick. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Hank, and thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you. Uh, Patrick. we begin each show with the same question, and that question is... What is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Um, I have always wanted to be a writer. I, I don't even know how far back this goes. You, you know, when we'd be sitting on the porch with my cousin on a boring summer day, at the end, at the end of the summer when you really uh, run out of things to do, what should we do? It's Let's write a story. And nobody else. <laughs> thought this was fun but me um i as a child i didn't know any other writers i grew up in a, a working class mill town um, where you were supposed to be tough you weren't supposed to be around reading poetry but that's what i like to do and i i really i used to go into my room and write these stories um and poems from a very very young age were you uh were you a bookish kid? What were you you know were you one of those kids that always had your nose in a book? I was, and I, I you know as I said this this was not very cool in the neighborhood where I grew up, so I had to be a little <laughs> about it. I used to you know <laughs> be in class with um you know a novel or a poetry book under my math book, and uh, it was very embarrassing to be caught. That's that's so funny. Um, do you remember a, a specific book or a specific author or maybe a series of books that just completely transformed the way you think about stories and that that let you, uh, you know, believe that you could be transported to a new place? Well, um, you know, as a child, I, I was one of the. Uh, what are these of the generation of Nancy Drew? And I love Nancy Drew. Um, the Secret of the Old Clock. Uh, that book really started me off. And then, you know, uh, as as my taste improved a bit, I got uh, loved Little Women and um, uh, Anne of Green Gables and all of that. You know, so 
I just loved books and I loved to read biographies. I loved to read about people who could do things um, that they never imagined they could do. You know, I've heard so many people on this show and we've, we've done, you know, right at 1100 episodes now. And so many people have, have said that Nancy Drew was their, uh, uh, or, or the Hardy boys or, you know, uh, that, that sort of vintage of stories was their, their gateway drug. If you want to, it's so funny that, uh, that so many people have that similar experience. I love it. Well, they had, you know, she, um, she did a great job creating, um, wonderful stories and very vivid, memorable, discreet characters, which are the first two skills a writer needs to learn. So. Absolutely. So Patrick, um, you know, as as happens with with so many writers, um, early on you have the the dream, the desire uh, to tell stories, and and you know inside you uh, that that somehow, some way, that this is going to be a reality for you. And then you know, the little thing you know called life gets in the way, and um, and you start uh, raising a family, and you start you know, having to pay bills and all the things that come with, you know, quote unquote adulthood. Um, and, you know, the 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 writing dream kind of gets pushed to the side uh, while you do, you know, important things. Uh, but somehow that desire has a way of coming back around. What was it that brought writing back around for you? Well, it never, it never totally went away. And I, you know, I think for me, it comes down to just loving, I love to write for the joy of writing, you know, and I think that has to be number one before you seek publication. And I, you know, and, and I was always trying to whatever little thing I'd write, I'd try to get it published. Um, you know, when I was in college, I, I, I didn't think being a writer was a real thing you could be. So I majored in everything else, but I kept taking writing courses. And, um, <laughs> And ended up being a waitress who who wrote, right? So um, I I was always writing poems and short stories and submitting them and and had a lot of success with that in my younger years. And then no, but I really wasn't able to dedicate myself to it full time until I sold my first novel. And um, by by then I was in my mid fifties. So the, you know, keep going out there, whoever you are. <laughs> Was that first novel, The Liar's Diary? It was. It was. Do, do you remember what the? Um, I, I love to hear about the the first ideas, um, you know, that that bring books to life because, you know, it's it's sort of this. It, it's sort of like magic in a lot of ways. One moment, The Liar's Diary does not exist in any form, fashion. None of the characters are there. That it's it it's a thing that does not exist. And then either a character comes into your mind. I like to to say that they walk on the stage of your mind, or um, you know, you you read a, a newspaper, uh, you know, story and, and a magazine article, see something on the news, and it starts the what if game playing in your mind. And then all of a sudden, in one form or fashion, the liar's diary is a real thing. Now that you know, you'll go through months and months of of writing and discovering the story and the character arcs and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but those are just revisions of a thing that, that just magically came into existence. What, what was that, that initial thought that, that brought this thing to life? Um, 
Well, it, it was, as you said, it, it is a sort of a magical, very much so, you know, it's where do these characters come from? I, they feel absolutely so real when you're writing them that it's hard for me to say that they're not, you know, um, but for, for The Liar's Diary, it was reading an article. It was, it was re an article that was in the news story um, about a teenage boy who had sort of stalked and killed a neighbor. And he was considered a very gr good kid. And so I did, and everyone said so. And I just became intrigued how this could happen. And um, in, in The Liar's Diary, the, the teenage boy that I created, um, he was not capable of doing that. So he didn't end up being the murderer. But as you said, there's some sort of a starting point. And you're, it, it, yeah, I compare it to um, when you get a new car, you know, that I got a new uh, blue forest to Subaru. And all of a sudden, every you see them everywhere. Oh, wow, look, every, they have a, a forester, a Subaru forester, right? And... Uh, ideas are like that too. Once you become so um, a storyteller, you start noticing ideas everywhere. And and as you say, they're just the starting point because um, then the magic takes over. So how long did it take you to write that first book? Um, the amazing thing about that book is that I wrote The Liar's Diary in three months. It's a feat I've never been able to uh, reproduce and I did it um, I, I you know that's a suspense novel and I had really fun writing it I had I, I had readers along the way and they were um, they were really pulled into all the twists and turns and suspense so they were demanding I need the next chapter okay where is it so I had to keep <laughs> <laughs> that's a really great way to um, when you when you have readers waiting for something to get the juices flowing so who were the readers that you had along that journey with you? Um, well, a couple of friends. And actually, my teenage daughter was reading it. And I can still picture her now. She'd race into the house, throw her, her backpack down and say, OK, where is it? So <laughs> she was the most compelling voice. <laughs> so were you in the habit of sharing things that you wrote with other people at this time? Um. Well, you know, I did. Like I said, whenever I'd write a short story, I would always submit it to magazines right away. And I did, you know, to some degree, um, I I was sharing things. But that was a, a different way of writing, sort of, you know, how um, some of the old masters like Dickens, they used to write. That's how they wrote their books, right? They wrote them chapter by chapter and published right. them and went along. And, and then, you you know, there was no room for writer's block there if you if you have an audience. <laughs> what happens next right well and you know another thing um is that uh, a lot of times when you're writing a book uh some people will maybe get to the middle and then start doubting what they wrote previously and then they wind up going back and and starting all over again erasing uh you know and and the they never get to the end of it because it's just a constant, you know, editing and editing and editing before it's even finished. And, um, you know, having some people along for the ride, uh, so to speak, or like you said, with, with Dickens, um, and publishing serially, um, there's absolutely no room for that because people are already invested in the story that you've begun telling them. Um, so that, that's kind of a, uh, you know, having other people to to keep you motivated, um, but also to uh, to sort of have to answer to it in a way um, yeah. that that can be a powerful thing. 
It is a very powerful thing. Very, very powerful, you know, and um, all those uh, uh, deadly processes that you just described, I've done those many times, you know, um, getting to the middle of the book and realizing you're totally lost and deleting the whole thing and you need to want to tell it from another perspective. And as a matter of fact, when I was writing All the Children Are Home, I, I did that several times. And, and, and I, I eventually I had um, 857 pages that added up to nothing. Oh, um, no. <laughs> I to study. And, you know, I, I didn't know it would, if it would ever be a book. And then a writer friend said, well, send me the first chapter. And I didn't even feel comfortable doing that. She said, come on, come on. She really urged me to do that. So I did. And then she said, all right, send me the second chapter. And then, and, you know, after about four chapters, she said, well, this is all really great, but, you know, you don't have a plot here. And then I think I just sort of started do. she said, send me another chapter next week that's really going somewhere. And then I think I reproduced what I did with The Liar's Diary, that I, I, um, I started sending her a chapter every week. And if I went off the beaten path, she'd tell me... Um, well, what does this have to do with it? You know, because I can tend to get so interested in all my secondary characters that, um, well, I want to know all about them and maybe the reader may not. Uh, so, you know, so that is really, really helpful. That, And I don't think without doing that, without that, I would have never gotten this book done either. You, you know, um, writing can be such a solitary um, pursuit and the the majority of the book's life uh, it happens with just you in a room with a computer. Um, you know, then, then of course, when the draft is done, you know, you send it to editors and, uh, you know, and then some other people become involved in the process. But the vast majority of the time is, is just you uh, alone with the characters. And, um, you know, maybe bringing in a, a little accountability along the way is is not a bad thing even, even though i i find i i know myself i find that very difficult to do I, I find it very difficult to share what's going on with other people when i'm still in the process that's uh you know maybe that's a a pride issue that i need to work on <laughs> well you know that's true and i just re just i started working with another sort of writing partner recently and and both of us have been doing that you know, we've both been saying, oh, well, I'll send it next week because you, I feel like it's not ready to, for anyone else's eyes but my own, sort of like what, how you're describing your process. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it does happen. So um, I don't know, you know, hopefully this is good, it, you know, but it does help if you can get if you can do it. it it's it's been really great for me. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. 
website was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting, and we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. So after uh, The Liar's Diary, uh, The Orphans of Race Point uh, was your was your second book, is that right? Yes. What, what's the story behind that book? Um, well, that story, that, that, that um, began with a character. You know, I, I saw this little boy huddled in the closet, and I saw him so clearly. And I didn't know why he was there, but I, I, I had to find out, and I followed him. And um, it took a very long time to write that book because it's pretty, uh, I would say, uh, I, I didn't have anything that I was basing it on. It, it all came from imagination. So, of course, once things are done, um, people start saying, oh, they, when they're talking about the characters back to me or something, I go, oh, that sounds like my grandfather. So, you know, everything comes from somewhere, but I didn't necessarily know where. Gotcha. Um, what, since the, you know, the Liar's Diary came about in such a fiery fashion of just, you know, really pounding out the words, um what was what was your experience with with the second book? Did you know when when it didn't come as fast? Um, did what, was there any point where you doubted yourself, where you kind of wrestled with the the uh, the whole sophomore book um, process? Uh, there were a lot of points like that, and then as a matter of fact, um, my agent tried to sell the book um, a few years before she actually did sell it, and. She loved the book. She really believed in it. And she tried very hard with every publisher, uh, large and small, and could not sell the book. But one editor um, made a suggestion. I had started the the book at a different uh, time point. And he said, no, no, this is all wrong. This person needs to come to Hallie. the, The female protagonist needs to be much stronger. And we need to start back in childhood, not tell the book in that in backstory. And, you know, at the, you know, books kind of get set in stone, Hank, you probably have experience sometimes with that. And um, so I said, no, no, I can't possibly do that. It has to be the way it is. And I, I put the the book in the draw, the old proverbial draw for uh, three <laughs> years. And then my agent said, I really love that book. Do you think you could take that out and work on it again? And, you know, I took it out and I realized that editor was absolutely right and uh, it worked. So you just really never know, you know, I mean, um, neither of my books sold the first time they went out. The same thing actually had happened with um, The Liar's Diary that another agent tried to sell it a couple of years earlier and was unable to and um, my agent 
um, took it out and sold it in three weeks. So you just really don't know. It's You know how they always say finding that right editor is so <laughs> crucial. And, and when you're getting a rejection letter that says, I'm just not the right person for this project, well, sometimes that's really true. You know, you really have to find that right editor who um, sticks with it and reads it and, and falls in love with it. I love it. I love it. Um, the There was a a subtle shift in tone uh, from the first book to the second book. And um, do you, what, what was the, the, um, you know, because the first book was, was more of a suspense thriller um, and, uh, and the second was more literary. What, what was the, your kind of journey from, from one genre to the other? Um, well, really, I had I had started writing um, literary type of stories, and I, I really saw that um, as as who I was as a writer, and uh, and then I had written a, a literary novel that did not sell, and and I I love to read in both genres, so I thought you know I'm going to try this, I, you know this would be fun, and, and like, as I said, it really was fun to write. I loved writing it. I liked doing the twists and turns and um surprising myself as I go along and I loved writing for the audience as I said so um it was a bit of a departure but I loved doing it so your new book uh which is uh, available everywhere today when people are hearing this episode today is release day so congratulations uh, on uh, on published day for all the children are home that's a that's a big big deal we love to celebrate new releases here on the show Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'll be so I'm tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me where this story came from, um, because th- this is a story of, of foster families, which I find um, very intriguing. Um, my wife and I, we have a big family. We have five kids um, and uh, and we have a lot of. Um, nieces and nephews and things like that that are that are around a lot and a, a lot of times it feels like we have you know a big extended family that that kind of comes and goes and and while not at all um, like foster families um, in one sense it it definitely feels like we uh, have extended family that that's not necessarily quote unquote ours um, so that there are a lot of things that I can relate to in this book is what I'm trying to say um, what was it about the idea of foster families that intrigued you uh, to the point that you you know wrote a story about them um, oh, first of all your house sounds like a lot of fun <laughs> <It sounds> like- <laughs> um, uh, yeah, well um, my former husband uh, he had grown up in foster care and um like Agnes, uh, one of the main characters, he was an um, indigenous American, and he knew nothing about his heritage, or he had, and he had gone through a lot of neglect and abuse in his first six years. And um, a few years ago, he was dying, and he asked me if I would write a eulogy for him. And he said, and make sure you put in the greatest day of my life when I went into this family. And for the first time in my life, I sat down at a, at a kitchen table and, and, and shared a meal with a family. He did not remember ever having done this ordinary thing that we all take for granted, right? And, um, and they had Franco-American spaghetti for dinner. That was such a vivid memory of the greatest day in his life. And... <laughs> 
<laughs> so I, you know, as, as an ex-wife, I didn't really think I was the person to write the eulogy, to give to give the eulogy. But um, instead, I wrote a novel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so you started um, connecting with with personal stories that you had heard and that you had um, been. Uh, kind of in, ingrained in, in the relationships that you had. Um, where did these characters come from? Um, I understand the, the idea of a fostership and, and, and extended family. Um, how did, how did these characters come about? Well, then once you go back to that um, mystery, the mystery that you described in the early part of our interview Hank you know that um you don't really know where they they come from and you know I started off um you know I did not I I didn't want this is fiction though it began with something from my life Uh, and I wanted to tell Agnes's story but gradually the parents the, the mother and father sort of took over the story uh, and became, I would say, th- though all the, you know, it's a family. It's a very much of a family story, and all, and they're all important. But the mother, sure. mother's voice became probably the strongest, and she begins and ends the book. And the father, though he does not have any um, chapters in his voice, he speaks very loudly through his actions. You know, the sort of um, strong, silent type of a father that we that were present in the 50s and 60s and that were glorified in the movies and everything, you know, that we know him through his actions and his steadfast presence. And, um, and he, and he speaks very loudly that way. When you mentioned that, um, that all of these characters, um, came about, but the, the mother, her voice um, became really prominent. Um, is, is it that way um, when when creating a new story, when when you start thinking of a cast of characters, does one sort of stand up and and start telling the story through through their point of view? Is, is that something that that has happened before? I think you, for me, um, and I don't know how, how you've experienced this, but uh, you have to get the right voice. That that's yeah. really a critical thing and I did start the story with various entry points and none of them were right and then I was going through that agonizing process we talked about in the beginning but um her voice was the right voice but then I found you know these are this is told in alternating voices and though she is it's it's her story she's she's probably the prominent antagonist but protagonist but the the other is um they all speak and it was really finding a who's the next family member who who can carry the thread forward and 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 keep the process going you wrestle with some uh some really deep and complex issues in the book um but do it in a way um, that I empathize with the characters and I'm, I'm all in with their family story. Um, you know, we, we deal with, um, the ideas of, uh, you know, how does a foster family deal with, uh, uh, you know, deal with the, the reality of, of not knowing what the, the child that they take in is going to be like. I mean, that, that, that can be 
scary. Uh, you know, it, when, when you have a child that, that you birth, um, you know, my, and, and my daughter just, just had a baby a, a couple of weeks ago and, and we had this, this first granddaughter and, um, and you know, it, it's so fun because, um, you look at this little baby and, and she is a completely blank slate and she comes with, with nothing and everything she learns and all of that is going to come, you know, from her family and, and what we pour into her, um, with a foster family who then takes in a child, um, and, and we don't know the history. We don't know what has been poured into this child. Um, there's, there's a lot of, um, that could be very scary, you know, in, in a way. Um, and then, you know, then you have to deal with the idea of with, with foster parents, sometimes you pour so much into this child and then they have to leave. Um, you know, either they go back to their uh, birth parents or, you know, they go to another family who adopts them. Uh, and and then you, you're left with all these attachments and and you have to be willing to, you know, to let go and let the process happen. There, there's so many complex emotions that, that get wrapped up into this and, and you handle it in such a. Uh, a beautiful way that, uh, you know, that has us engaged in the story all along. Um, uh, that I, I, I don't even know what to say other than th- this is such a huge um, uh, undertaking and you did it so deftly that, uh, that I was, I was all in all the way. Oh, thank you so much for that. And can congratulations on your granddaughter. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, y- yes. You know, I mean, for both the children and for the foster parents, there's all these unknowns and they all come with their history and they have to find a way to live with their history, their attachments that they may have had with their birth or not had with their birth family or, or their their own woundedness. And they the children have to live with that and the parents do as well. And, um, you know, there there's a lot of critique of the foster care system and and you know it it but it's very difficult and most people you know there there are some I'm sure that do it there are definitely some who do it for the wrong reasons but I think most people they they do it for the right reasons but it's very challenging for all the reasons you named that um you're taking in some society's most wounded children and um and and you don't know uh, you don't know even it, you know you invest all this in them and you don't know if they can stay and particularly in the 50s and 60s when this took place they were very reluctant to terminate parental rights that sometimes in in the cases that I described they would have done that but they don't um, they didn't do that back then and and you know so it's a constantly evolving thing and I did I'm really glad to hear that that came through the complications of that. And I think there's such a lesson I felt that I learned from this family of just loving people where they where they are, and 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 the Louis and Dahlia, the parents, they do that for each other because they both come with their own issues, and and then they extend that to the children, and you, you raise them. You don't know how it's going to turn out, but everyone everyone deserves a decent, loving childhood and that's what they give them and uh, you know of course with our own children we we do it's much the same you do the very best you can in your own um 
with all your own imperfections and you don't know how it will turn out, but you do the very best you can. And, uh, but it's that much more challenging in a foster family. Dahlia was uh, one of the most fascinating characters and, and the one that was so easy to to relate to uh, in the book. Did you find yourself um, commiserating with Dahlia uh, along the way? Did, did, and did you start seeing, you know, pieces of yourself in her? Uh, there probably were. Yes. You know, I mean, I think the challenge of all parents, Dahlia sits there she has um, she's agoraphobic and she's in the house all the time I guess as a writer I I was relating to that (laughs) Um, and she sits there with her jigsaw puzzles and her stack of books and what she's really trying to add her own and all her own muck and issues and she tries to figure out what does this child need to make them thrive? What does each of these very different individual children need to make them thrive? And I, you know, I relate to this as a mother. I think that's every, every parent's task, right? You find that you think you're going to mold your children into what you want them to be. And I'm sure you can relate to this, Hank, but they, they come and they're all very different. And you sort of have to follow, well, what does this one need? And offer various things and let them try and let them try them and find themselves. And so I did relate very much to Dahlia in that way. And maybe that's why her voice um, became so prominent because I see the world as a mother. Absolutely. However, interestingly enough, you know, doing these different voices uh, the ease, the voices, the voice that came to me most easily was probably the one um, most unlike myself was the voice of the teenage boy, Jimmy. His chapters just flew. They just I, I was possessed by Jimmy and um, his chapters totally wrote themselves. Love that. All the Children Are Home is available everywhere today. When you're hearing this, uh, you can grab it in Kindle edition, or if you like uh, to hold paper in your hands, you can get the hardcover also uh, in audiobook format. We're going to put links to all those places in the show notes of this episode. Uh, I guarantee this: th- there's something in this story for everyone, whether, whether you think this is your genre or not. Uh, absolutely give it a chance. I know you're going to love it. Um, Patrick, if people are just learning about you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, is there a place where they can find you online? There certainly is. It's patrickfrancis.com, and I'd love for people to visit. Excellent. We'll put links uh, to that in the show notes as well. Uh, Patrick, I love the book so much. Um, Thank you for taking time to come on the show today. Oh, thank you so much, Hank. This was wonderful. You and I could talk all day. (laughs) (laughs) Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started. Are you looking for software that helps you bring your novel to life? Novelize is a web-based writing app which allows you to access your work 
on any device with a browser and an internet connection right from your desktop, laptop, tablet, or smartphone. Just get the novel written. Say goodbye to sticky notes. With our notebook on the side, you can keep track of all the important information you need to write your novel. We keep distractions to a minimum, help you track your progress, and encourage you to write more novels. You can even use the same notebook for your novels in a series. Outline, write, or organize your novel by switching between modes. You can write your outline notes while you're writing, and you can move scenes and chapters around anytime in the organized mode. Choose between the dark and light theme to help prevent eye strain so that you can stay immersed in your book. Novelize, the app for writers by writers.